Welcome to 52% Productions. Our goal is to highlight the stories of those marginalized by the traditional U.S. history canon, examine their inclusion in the public sphere, and educate ourselves along the way through open dialogue. On this final episode of our season, we will be focusing on tourism. Thanks for listening. Hi, everybody. Hi, welcome back to 52%. So glad you're here. I'm Lee. I'm Margie. Margie, what are we going to talk about today? Today, we're going to talk about tourism because that's what we do. It is. That is, well, let me elaborate because I feel like if we say to people, tourism is what we do, it sounds like we're like these lavish travelers that go places. And Well, we are. I mean, let's I mean, we are. <laughs> It's true, we are, but we are we are also the people that guide other people on their lavish and extraordinary adventures, specifically to historic sites and museum institutions. Yeah, we have the privilege of of being the guides on somebody else's journey, and I mean, you know, we love the stories anyway, and we love a captive audience. So it's kind of the perfect fit. I don't know. Perfect. Yes, it is perfect. <laughs> I feel like we've had a lot of conversations with other tour guides over the years about what we talk about with 52, about integrating the stories of the marginalized into the traditional U.S. history canon. Um, mm-hmm. I think Mount Vernon's probably a great example. You know, you go to Mount Definitely. Vernon to learn about George Washington, but, but. Or rather, yes and. Yes, yes and. Historically, it's been very easy to go to a place like Mount Vernon and not hear about anybody except for George Washington and, of course, his wife, Martha. But you definitely hear more about him than you hear about her. But also, it's important to consider that that place quite literally wouldn't have existed, wouldn't have been able to thrive, and probably wouldn't still be in the condition that it's in today were it not for the people, all of the other people that existed there. So... The purpose of this episode in particular is to give our fellow tour guides, tour directors, this is our way of giving everyone a little advice on how to expand your narrative. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Just extra tools in the toolbox. I feel that, uh, Margie, you probably have some, some tips and tricks, some keys and guidelines that you think work best when it comes to going to the same old spots that we go to um, on our regular routes and giving a a different story. What kind of keys, get three maybe, that you could uh, offer? Yeah. So I would say the first key would be to paint a complete picture. And that's a very abstract way for me to say to look for every possible opportunity to tell a story. For example, if you're going, we'll we'll just keep using Mount Vernon because that's easy and we go there a lot and a lot of our fellow tour guides and directors go there as well. So when you're going to Mount Vernon, 
as you're taking your house tour, we'll say, there are so many things to talk about within the house other than Mr. Washington. If you're a person that is into architecture or archaeology or decoration, you can talk about the paint that's on the walls. You can talk about the wallpaper. You can talk about the furniture. If you are a person that is into cooking, that kitchen there is magnificent. And there are lots of different tools and different foods and different techniques that were used there to cook all of the food that the Washingtons and their guests would have been eating. That's also an excellent segue into the lives of the enslaved people that were there. There is a bell. The bell is in the kitchen. The string to the bell is inside the house. Uh, And that is a story within itself because inevitably people always ask, what is the bell for? Where does the bell lead? Or what is this string for? Where does this string lead? That is the bell that was rung to inform the enslaved people that something was needed inside the house. So if you're within that room where that string is hanging, you can talk about that string. You can talk about the furniture within the room. You can talk about the person that lived in the room. So painting a complete picture, if you're looking at a painting, you can pick out every single little detail within the painting and find something to talk about with it. So that's what I mean when I say paint a complete picture. The second is be specific. Specificity is key. And I think the difference between painting a complete picture and being specific is that even if you paint a complete picture, if you don't zoom in on each of those different things that are within your painting that you're putting together, then it's just a mishmash of information. But if you you zone in and you get specific about the things that you're talking about and you name names, the more specific information in that regard that you can lay on your guests and provide for them. Uh, Number one, the more you sound like you know what you're talking about, because you do know what you're talking about because you're being specific, but also it gives them, I feel like being specific really just, it really lights a spark of inspiration within people to go and start to look up things for themselves. Because I feel like (laughs) the more specific you are, the more skeptical maybe people are. They're like, oh, I... I'm going to find out if that's actually true. You sound like you know what you're talking about, but I don't remember it that way. So let me go. Because <laughs> we've definitely experienced that before. My last one is be passionate. And when you're being specific and you're painting complete pictures and you know what you're talking about, it's easy to be passionate because you know what you're talking about without a shadow of a doubt. And the more passionate you are, the more engaged your guests will be, whether they're skeptical or not. They'll be engaged in everything that you're saying and want to know more. So when you're painting vivid, complete pictures with specific details and information, you will be passionate and your guests will in turn be passionate as well. Those are my tidbits, my keys, I love as it. you said. Because what are your keys? I, I love yours, Margie, because they're all actionable and they're they're easy to to follow as guideposts. You know, it's it's something that as a storyteller you should be injecting into the way you're presenting your your narratives of history to the guests anyway, in order for them to be engaged. Um, yeah, it's all about the passion. Um, mm-hmm. 
you can talk passionately about something that is obscure and obtuse, but if you, you love it, they're going to love it with you. Yeah. Um, yeah. My keys, I will say this as a caveat, my keys are specifically pointed toward tour guides who look like me, mm. who might be a little fearful or feel that they should should not, which uh, should not be um, uh, venturing into telling stories about people who don't look like them. Mm-hmm. And first of all, I have to say that is not a fear to have. So, and I think to that to that same point, it's important to consider the fact that. When researching enslaved people, the only way to even begin to talk about them and tell their stories is to talk about their enslavers and research their enslavers. So I wouldn't even be able to get there if I was afraid to research or talk about the people who own them. Right. Yes. Um, Which brings me to my first key, which is arm yourself with knowledge. Mm-hmm. We are the experts when we are standing in front of our guests. Our guests think we are the experts. And so if you are feeling nervous about talking about enslaved people or talking about civil rights leaders or talking about the indigenous that lived on the land before the colonists showed up or talking about someone whose faith is different than yours, go fall down all of the rabbit holes so that you feel like the expert when people expect you to be the expert. Arm yourself with that knowledge, know the stories and the history backwards and forwards. And if you ever reach that point where someone says, yeah, but I thought the way I learned it was, how do you know? You can respond with, well, in the research that I have done and in the sources that I have gone to, so that you are right there to be able to stand on the truth you have learned. So arm yourself with knowledge. The second key point that I have is know your audience. This is a big thing with performing. Margie and I, of course, both come from performing backgrounds. Knowing your audience is very important. You don't want to share all of your knowledge with every guest all of the time. Mitch Bach, who we adore um, from the trip school, said that yes, guests want to escape, but they also want to grow and learn. The first part of that is as important as the second part of it. And sometimes you're going to have that guest in front of you who is just on vacation. That is not going to be the most receptive audience to all of the rabbit holes you want to jump down with them. Let them have their time. Let them have their time. You know, if you've got that audience where you've got one person who's leaning in and everyone else wants to know when we're getting the coffee break, then you have coffee with that one person who is leaning in. Know your audience. If you have a group of African-Americans from Chicago and you are in Atlanta and you are a white guide wanting to talk about the civil rights, you know what? Do it because they want the information. Just make sure you've armed yourself with knowledge. Let's say you've got a group of conservative, smaller area, less diverse 
and you have them in New York and really all they want to do is Fifth Avenue, awesome. Do Fifth Avenue with them. And maybe find that moment where you can slide a story in that they weren't expecting. You got to bring them on the journey with you. So know your audience because that way you can pick and choose how your data is going out there. And the last key that I have is be brave. If you've got the knowledge and you know who you're sharing it with, be brave enough to stand on the truths that you have acquired to be able to share that story you're passionate about and be passionate about it. Uh, there's a tour guide in, in Washington, D.C. who is passionate about women's history. And he is one of the best storytellers I know about women's history. I love it. Yeah. I, I love arming yourself with knowledge. I feel like that is so powerful and so necessary for what we do because it would be nice to assume that our guests want us to be right, <laughs> but sometimes they really want us to be wrong. Yeah. They really want to prove us wrong. They really want to know more than us. I'm sure everyone has had that either the one or the few guests on their tour that's like fact checking them the whole time or but if you're armed with knowledge if you are if you have built yourself up a good strong foundation of information then no one can sway you and if you are passionate and excited about the information that you have that you are sharing then it can be received I don't want to say that there's no way that it can be received in a negative way because anything can be received in a negative way if someone wants it to be. But I think the the genuine nature of you wanting to share your knowledge will come across as opposed to people feeling like you're trying to beat them over the head with information of some kind. It's the duality of why someone travels because they do want to travel for the escape, but they also want to travel to grow and learn, especially on the sorts of tours that we do. Otherwise you'd hit sandals and that would be the end of it. Right. Right. So we have that privileged position of being the ones who get to hold their hands as they're along on the journey. So mm -hmm. for me, I kind of, I, I'm developing the goal of empathy. Mm. We talk a lot about you and I in 52% talk a lot about the other stories that are going on at the same time that the, the main always everybody knows this storyline and all of the other storylines are going on at the same time. It's one of the reasons why we do Wash A Corner mm -hmm. so that we are being specific. Right. We are lifting up individuals and we are helping our guests, in this case, our podcast guests, into that experience of, of growing and learning. And, and for me, it's about creating that sense of empathy. I feel that I am a person of growth when I'm walking toward empathy and being able to share these other stories at the same time is a part of the growth and journey for other folks. I don't know. Mm -hmm. No, I, I, I feel that 100%, especially with the stories, the 52% type stories. It is definitely a lesson in empathy because it's so... The way that we've been taught slavery, the way that we've been taught the lives of these individuals that were in bondage, there hasn't been a lot of empathy given to them. And 
hopefully in sharing more of their stories, sharing more of their experiences, and really starting to look at them and acknowledge them as the people that they were and giving them this personhood through continuing to say their names and tell their stories, we can achieve that level of empathy with people. Because that that's really, I feel like in the case of, of enslaved people specifically, that's that's really what it is about. Because for so long, their humanity has been removed. So there was no reason to feel empathetic towards them because they were just property. But that's not true. And you could make that argument for anything that is qualified as marginalized, as mm-hmm. other. Um, yeah. The, the women that have been left out of the, the history of STEM, mm-hmm. you know? I think one of the one of the lovely things about social media, I know I said it, one of the <laughs> lovely things about social media is when somebody lands on a, a story of a regular person mm-hmm. uh, and posts it for other people to also know about. We, we get stories about women and about Black Americans and a, about Asian Americans and, a, and about the LGBTQ community that we never would have had other than sitting around and talking to your friends at a coffee shop or whatever. Now we have yeah. this public forum to be able to say, oh my gosh, you guys, I found this amazing story. Those wow moments, those aha moments are very rarely about the primary individual that we were taught in school. Mm-hmm. My experience. You know, we can be inspired yeah. by those, the, the greats from... Yeah, but sometimes, but it's nice to, I think that when we hear about the everyman, for lack of a better term, it inspires us to feel like we could do the same things. When we hear about regular, ordinary, everyday people doing extraordinary things, it makes us feel like it's more possible for us. Because, you know, we, yes, we have all of these founding fathers and all of these other amazing people that we've been taught about throughout history that have been put up on these pedestals. But it's important to consider the fact that they would not be on these pedestals were it not for all of the people that were beneath them lifting them up. All of these ordinary people. And that's not to say that the people on the pedestals aren't ordinary people as well, because they definitely are, but they've just been lifted higher than everyone else. But all of those people beneath them that helped them to get there, even if it was in the tiniest way, are just as important and just as extraordinary. I mean, a person that's coming to mind right now is is Medgar Evers, you know? Like, He's buried right there in Arlington. His grave is there to be visited. And he was just as important to the civil rights movement as Dr. King. He just, unfortunately, you know, died pretty early, well, was murdered pretty early on. But it's people like him whose whose stories we're able to share that make everyday people feel like they are capable of the same extraordinary things. And I, I, I agree that that is so important and so impactful, especially for kids. How would you address concerns from tour guides about the danger of villainizing the primary figure. Mm. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. how how can we talk about Thomas Jefferson without making him the villain story, but still talking about, I don't know, Sally. Sally. <laughs> I think it's less about vilifying people 
and more about pulling them down from their pedestals. And I feel like if those two ideas can be separated and be made to be very specifically different things, then it can change the tone in which you tell the story and share the information so that it's not being received as if this person is trying to be vilified. And it's more so just talking about the things that they did in their life. Because people, humans are not perfect. Humans are not infallible. They do horrible, terrible, horrific things. They also do wonderful, amazing, impactful, earth-shattering things. And I think you brought up duality earlier. I feel like that's the important thing when we're talking about these human beings is talking about the capacity of duality and just not always having it right. No one has ever always had it right. And I feel like it's just as important to honor someone's achievements as it is to honor will or acknowledge rather their failures, especially right now, you know, with this is one of the downsides of social media, but there's this expectation of perfection all the time. It's like, you need to be perfect. You need to do this. You need to tick all of these boxes. You need to do all of these things. And we're presented with these, these founding fathers and these historical figures that have been put on these pedestals have been made to seem absolutely perfect and stellar to all of us when in actuality they weren't. And just pulling them down from those pedestals and looking them eye to eye, we can see them for the human beings that they were, the flawed human beings that they were, and still have respect for them in the amazing things that they were able to achieve, but also recognize that they're just as complicated as we are right now. What do you think about, because I just, I know that that is, when we were working together at Colonial Williamsburg, that was a thing that was, mm, was triggering for some of our guests when we would, you know, talk about the number of enslaved people that a founding father owned or talk about the complicated relationships that they had with enslaved people or talk about the bad choices that they made in battle or, you know, anything like that. So what would your plan of attack or game plan be in trying to not trigger guests in that way? Um, <laughs> I have two, I have two stories. So I was hired for a cocktail party on a boat in Alexandria a number of years ago. <laughs> and I was hired to portray for this cocktail party, Abigail Adams. And this, this was much less first person work and much more put on a costume and wander around and take pictures with the guests. Um, I've been there. <laughs> yeah. um, it, which is fine. And there were several men there that I know. There was a, a Washington, there was a Jefferson, there was a Franklin, and there was me as Abigail Adams. Uh, <laughs> I remember having a conversation with a guest with a, a male guest who asked me as Abigail Adams what I thought about George Washington, what I thought about Thomas Jefferson, what I thought about Benjamin Franklin. And we know that Abigail Adams was a little bit on the sassy side and spoke her mind. 
and I do the same. So I <laughs> used it as an opportunity to talk about the more human personality aspects of these founding father types. And at one point, the guest looked at me and he said, don't you have any respect for any of these men? And I said, sir, you have to understand that for me, they are not heroes. They are men who have had a job to do. Mm. And I kind of take the same sort of attitude when it comes to talking about these common heroes of our historical culture, that they were people. And just because they did a great thing doesn't make the ugly things go away. And just because they participated in ugly things doesn't make the great things go away. Mm -hmm. It's very similar to how in this particular political moment, we are looking at our presidential figures, you know, we're able to look at the good, the bad, and the ugly in the moment. And I guess with all of the time and space and history between us and George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and all of the others, it's easier for people to only look at the good things that they did, but they were even Some might even say the neutral Um, Mm. You know, this rolls back to a discussion we had in the language episode about how, as tour guides, we should, there's that word again, stay neutral in how we're sharing history. There's no such thing as neutral. Neutral Mm -hmm. is a single timeline story. Mm -hmm. Um, It is the story that we get out of the textbooks that were designed to create a very copacetic sense of of patriotism and look that's fine yes and Mm -hmm. yes and I don't see myself as a landed gentry guy owning a plantation down the street so where am I Mm -hmm. and how can I feel like I'm a part of the the fabric of goodness that we're capable of if I don't see myself in the stories that are shared so mm-hmm. it's it's it, it's about shattering that idea of neutral, I think, and being the brave tour guide to say, you guys, I, I heard this really interesting story about someone who was at the dedication ceremony of this memorial mm-hmm. of Lincoln behind us, and his name is Robert Moton. And talk about Dr. Moton while you're talking about President Lincoln. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a way... There's a way to put the stories together so that it doesn't feel, it doesn't put anyone on the defensive. Yeah. Who wants to be on the defensive on vacation? No, no, no one wants to be on the defensive. But if you're going on a vacation that you intend to learn, you should definitely expect to be challenged or changed at the end. Yeah. One other thing that I want to introduce is the idea, just like breaking down the neutral, shattering the neutral, shatter February. Oh, yeah. Um, It is not, Black History Month is all year round. Black history every day. Because guess what, y'all? Black history is American history. It's American history. Is our history. It's our shared history. It's, It's our history. We're not just speaking to the tour directors who work with students. Mm -hmm. It might feel that way, but we're not. 
you guys who do the the Western parks, you've got indigenous folks out there. Yep. So don't feel that this is just an East Coast or a Southern thing. Um, you've got indigenous folks and you have Asian folks as well. Their history runs very deep on the West Coast. Also, you know, all of the the all of the abducted Africans by the Spanish and the Portuguese who ended up in South America who made their claim for freedom and ran to what is now Middle America. Mm-hmm. You know, there are there are communities of free blacks that were out there as the white colonists were anyway, off track. Um there are stories everywhere is the there point. Are stories <laughs> everywhere. I feel that there is sometimes this segregation to choose a word of how you're going to tell a story. Like this is the time in my day where I'm going to tell you a story about a woman. This is the time in the tour where I'm going to talk about immigrants. This is the time where we are going to talk about the enslaved. Just put it all together because it has been all together all the time, whether we want to look at it that way or not. Mm -hmm. So I like to encourage the avoidance of Februarying what you do. Um, Look, I'm not denigrating Black History Month. Love Black History Month. I'm all there for it. Yes. But, but we as tour directors don't have to do that. We can talk about, we can meta what we're doing. We can layer what we're doing. It's delicious layer cake. So, mm-hmm. so get in there. Just start putting it in. Just yes. add it in anyway. Yes. Because there's, like we said, there are stories everywhere. everywhere. There are stories everywhere. I unfortunately have not been able to find the time to squeeze it into a New York tour, but I am dying to take a group to the African burial ground. I am dying to do it. I I can't see you, whoever's listening to this, but, you know, raise your hand if you even know what that is. If you don't, it's in uh, the financial district and it is a beautiful memorial, a small park dedicated to the enslaved people that were buried just beyond Wall Street. Also, Wall Street was one of the largest trading ports of enslaved people. There's your story. There are stories everywhere. Everything is interwoven and connected in this country, and it all leads back to to the beginnings, to the foundings. And the foundings of this country were not just the founding fathers. So now I want to kind of flip it to a full 180 and talk a little bit about travel in general and something, I don't know, maybe you've noticed There are a lot of more people who look like me in the industry than there are who look like you. Ah, yes. And while it is very important, I think, for tour directors, tour guides of all stripes and colors to learn the full stories and share the full stories, I also feel that there are moments where uh, decentering needs to happen. Can I do a Harlem tour? Yeah. I can learn the stories and learn the route and tell some amazing tales of of Langston and James and Maya. But I feel that if it is possible to hire a local person who does local Harlem tours in the neighborhood where they were born and raised, Mm -hmm. that should be a priority. Yes, definitely. I... 
That is actually, I'm glad you brought that up because that's something that I, as you know, am very passionate about after spending a few years in the tourism industry. It's very unfortunate how few people of color overall, uh, not just Black people, but people of color overall are employed in the tour directing, tour guiding industry. And I I don't I I only have speculations as to why that is. I think it is probably mainly because it's just not something that a lot of people know about or consider to be an occupation. I mean, even within the the museum industry, there aren't a lot of people of color. So, I think that there just needs to be more outreach and more awareness created for these communities to know that not only are you needed and necessary and wanted, but the stories that you have to share are needed and necessary and wanted and important. And I think that the more people, the more people of color that there are in the industry, I at, this may be me just having delusions of grandeur because I have them often, but I imagine that if more people of color were brought into the fold, it would make it a little easier for our white colleagues to be able to share these stories because they're receiving them from the source number 1 so that they so they don't feel as if you know oh i don't i don't know if my research is reliable or whatever any kind of things like that but also there's just there's a level of comfort in in knowing that these people are here telling their stories from their real and true experiences. But I would love, I would love for there to be more more BIPOC people in the tourism industry because our our guests are asking for it. And I also think that it would bring about more tourism from BIPOC schools and groups, senior homes, clubs, whatever. Uh, they would want to travel more if they knew that they could have guides that looked like them and shared their same experiences. Because I want to say, unfortunately, it does make a difference, but I, but I, I don't know if that's the right way to say it. But it, it, it does because it's a comfort um, level. I, I yes. think that, you know, it's, it is valid to say it's okay to be uncomfortable sharing a story. It's okay mm-hmm. to live in the discomfort of it. It's mm-hmm. also perfectly valid to say, as a paying guest, <laughs> I would feel more comfortable, more relaxed, more open, more engaged if I felt that there was an easier direct connection mm-hmm. with the person leading me. Um, I yeah. think both of those things are valid. You know, it's a, I don't want to say it's a question of credibility, but Kind of, it kind of I it, it kind emotional of is. It's emotional credibility. I think that's exactly what it is. Though you, you you used the word connection before, and I feel like for guests specifically, let's say there's a group, and the mix of the group is Indigenous folks and Black folks, and they're going to Yorktown, Jamestown, Williamsburg. And they have a white guide taking them around, talking about slavery, talking about the Revolutionary War. And they're talking about it from their, from their historical vantage point, from their cultural vantage point. 
And that's a very different experience, even if they are speaking on the stories of these specific people. For current terms, it just hits different. (laughs) It just hits different for the guests to listen to these stories. Um, And I feel like there's a tinge of discomfort on both sides, but the discomfort is different, right? For the white guide, it's discomfort in telling these stories of these people to these people that could potentially be direct descendants of these people. And then there are the people that are taking the story in and perceivably listening to the stories of their people from their oppressors. So it's just so layered and, and, and complicated and makes it all the more important for tour operators and other tour companies to do the work to get more people of color on the ground doing the work. Yeah. This, it, you know, DEI is real hot topic right now, right? Diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's a challenge when the initiative of DEI is coming from an all-white team. Mm. Because I feel that sometimes it needs to be modeled in order to be believed. Mm-hmm. right? It's it's one thing for me to stand up in front of a group, and it's another thing for you to stand up in front of a group. It's something else completely different for the both of us to stand together, mm-hmm. right? And I mean, it's one of the reasons why we do 52 and, and why we've designed it the way we've designed it, because we want to be speaking to as broad a group as possible, mm-hmm. to have that emotional credibility with mm-hmm. folks saying, it's okay to be brave. Mm-hmm. It's the same. It hits the same from the corporate side of things as well. You know, it needs to be modeled to be believed, to have that emotional credibility attached to it. Definitely. Um, and there, there's like Leon Burnett and Media Arts Institute making great strides, doing the work, uh, inviting as many BIPOC into the industry as possible, providing the training capabil- possibilities. Right. So it's like, if you're going to, if you're a corporation that is going to really take DEI seriously, the first thing you need to do is hire a DEI professional that is a salaried position that is, that is preferably a BIPOC individual that is then going to school you on how to diversify and have an equitable community and an inclusive community in your in your institution. That is that is the way to do it from the top down, not from the bottom and to nowhere because... <laughs> so yes, don't be afraid that if you choose to decenter yourself to make space at the table that you no longer have a seat at the table. The table right. is as big as you want. <laughs> right, just scoot over. Just pull up another chair. It like, Bring a bigger table. You, all of these options are available or pull out the leaf underneath and make more space. Family is coming. <laughs> right. <laughs> family is on the way. But yeah, there, there is some, there is some work to be done. Maybe this is our call to action, but there is some work to be done in, in having a more diverse and equitable and inclusive tour director and guide Diversifying the team, diversify the team, diversify the fleet of guides. Yeah, that's so important to me. 
Because I know it, just speaking very, very personally and frankly, it gets super lonely out there. Yeah, it's necessary. It's definitely necessary. It's all about empathy and compassion. That's the whole, empathy and compassion is the whole reason to tell a story. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're telling a story about yourself, you want your listener to empathize with you in the moment you're sharing. If you're telling a story about dead people, you, you want the audience to be able to empathize with the struggle, the challenge, the victory, mm-hmm. the joy. Mm-hmm. And it's the same for the guests. I mean, I know I travel because I want to experience where I'm going. Mm-hmm. I want to, I want to empathize. I want to find that empathetic connection with the new site and culture and history that I'm choosing to spend my money to go to. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, like I said, hit sandals and give me a cocktail. Right. <laughs> that's that's a really good point that when we travel, even though we're going to experience something new and different, I feel like everyone when they're traveling is always looking for the ways that they are similar to the people or the place that they are. It's like, oh yeah, they you know do this differently, but this thing, this is the thing that we all do the same. Can you believe it? Right. So I think, yeah, that is super important. Empathy and compassion. No neutrality. Be brave. Be specific. Arm yourself with knowledge. Be passionate. Hey, family. Help us continue to bring you content. If you're loving what you hear, we'd love to have you show some of that love. Buy us a cup of coffee. Smash that donate button on our website. Better yet, buy these 20 seconds for your own ad time. Thanks. Ashe Corner. Ashe Corner. Since this week's episode has been about tourism, Margie and I thought it might be nice to go a little outside of the Williamsburg area for our Ashe Corner this week. For this Ashe Corner, I would like to lift up Selena Gray. Selena Gray was born and raised on Arlington Plantation a place that we all now know as Arlington Cemetery. For my tour directors out there, it's that big white house at the top of the hill that most of us share the story about John F. Kennedy looking out and talking about how he felt like he could live there forever. There's a lot of history attached to that house, but for this particular episode, I'm going to focus in on the story of Selena. She's most popularly known for being the enslaved woman that was given the keys when Mary Ann Custis Lee fled Arlington House when the Union Army came to occupy. But Selena Gray was an enslaved person who lived on this property her entire life. She was born to enslaved parents who raised her there on that plantation. She married her husband, Thornton Gray, there on that plantation and bore eight children with him. She even carried on a life after the Civil War ended as a free woman along with her husband. She was a woman. She was a wife. She was a mother. She was a business lady. And it's a little unfortunate that most people don't know her story. It's even more unfortunate that despite her living a life full of accomplishment and adventure, 
No one knows where she or her husband are buried. Despite that, the artifacts that people were so excited that she was able to preserve after being given the keys to Arlington House by Miss Custis Lee, those artifacts are in museums being preserved on display every day for people to see. But were it not for her and her due diligence, albeit her obligation from her mistress to take care of these artifacts, they wouldn't be there for any of us to see. So, this is for Selena, for Selena Norris Gray. Ashe. I would like to lift up the community of the Hot Water Tract, just outside Williamsburg. William Ludwell Lee was the owner in 1800. The property of Green Spring Plantation had passed down to him through his family, and the Green Spring Plantation was originally owned by Governor Berkeley in the 17th century. When William Ludwell Lee died in 1804, his will very specifically manumitted the enslaved people of Green Spring Plantation and set aside 1,200 acres. It was a section on the plantation known as the Hot Water Tract. And with this very vast holding of land, he gave it to the manumitted folks that were going to be remaining on the property. There were 28 enslaved individuals who were over the age of 16, and they created this community, this free community on the hot water tract. Now, those who were younger than 16, according to the will, were specifically sent, quote, to someone north of the Potomac so that they could receive education at the expense of the estate. As you can imagine, handing over this vast amount of land and uh, financials in order to cover education, the will was contested by William Ludwell Lee's two sisters and their husbands, and it stayed in the courts for almost two decades. But the families established themselves uh, in this new community on the hot water tract. For the first 10 years of that time there, according to the will, they were able to stay rent-free in their newfound freedom. Not a whole lot of information is known until the 1830s when a tax assessment and census form that is has been saved. The Civil War burned a whole lot of papers in Virginia. But this, this assessment in the 1830s showed that there were 13 free black families still holding community and living on the hot water tract of the former Green Spring Plantation. Most of the households that were living on the hot water tract were farmers. There's one exception. His name was Jubal Lightfoot. He was a bricklayer and a plasterer. The hot water tract remained in the Lee family until the 1840s when it was sold to absentee owners. And it, as a community, sort of disappeared around the time of the Civil War in the 1860s. Some additional information shows that some of the free blacks in the area, after living at the hot water tract, were able to purchase some of that land for themselves. By the 20th century, the land had been divided, was sold off, and today it is now the Freedom Park, one of the county parks in the area. 
And on Freedom Park, there are three replica houses that are standing to share the history of this free Black community, potentially one of the first purposefully designed free Black communities in Virginia. The three houses represent John Jackson and his family, Anthony Brown and his wife Rachel. The Browns and the Jacksons were farmers. And there's a house uh, that represents Jubal Lightfoot. But the legacy of William Ludwell Lee and the property that he left for these manumitted individuals and to create this free black community at the hot water track is still significant to James City County and the Williamsburg area today because some of the families that were a part of this community are names that are still known there. They're names like Lightfoot and Harwood, Crawley and Mason, and important to Colonial Williamsburg, the Cumbo family lived at the hot water tract. Edith Cumbo is one of the stories that is shared through first-person interpretation at Colonial Williamsburg. And the Kennedy family is from the hot water tract. And Colonial Williamsburg is incredibly fortunate to have descendants of the Kennedy family as members of the interpretive team, currently working at the museum and sharing the stories of the 52%. Ashe. Be sure to subscribe to our mailing list so we can keep you in the loop. And if you have a voice from our past you'd like us to highlight, be sure to let us know www.52percentproductions.com. That's the numbers 52percentproductions.com.